Welcome to the North Women's Bible Study, Jesus, Portraits of Our Precious Savior. I was hoping to have a guest join us this week, but due to the winter storm, we decided it would be best not to venture out to record together. So this week, you've got just me. Would you pray with me as we start? Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see Jesus. We thank you for your word. We want to know Jesus. We want to see him. And we can only do it if you give us those eyes to see. We pray that you would do this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So photographers say that there are five core elements that make up a good portrait. Location, lighting, composition, emotion, and technical settings. I'm lucky to remember even one of those when taking a photo. But when all five of these elements are well executed, a great portrait's created. And if any of these elements come up short, the quality of the portrait suffers. So paying close attention to these elements will lead to better photos and more consistent portraits. How does that relate to portraits of our precious Savior? The Bible has given us the most magnificent portraits of Jesus. So what elements should we consider? Well, number one is location. It's really important because it's a setting of this portrait. What is the setting in this lesson? So we're going to spend some time seeing where Jesus was born, where he grew up, and began his ministry. Lighting is another important element. We need the illumination of the Spirit that shines in our hearts to help us see Jesus. As for composition, God has composed the perfect portrait of his son Jesus for us in the Bible. Emotion. As you see Jesus throughout this study, I pray that your heart will grow in affection for him, that you will treasure Christ. And five, technical settings. These are chosen by the photographer, and they're really important, even if you don't understand them. Maybe you usually shoot in automatic mode like I do. For instance, you could have great light falling on your subject in the perfect location with beautiful framing. But if it's overexposed, then none of it matters. It's all washed out. But in the case of the Bible, there may be lots of technical stuff that you don't get. But God has masterfully created the perfect portraits of Jesus throughout the Bible. So in this lesson, we're going to look at a collection of portraits related to the earthly life and the ministry of Jesus. So we're going to see Jesus as a Nazarene, as a carpenter, as a healer, as a prophet, as a friend, as a bridegroom. So the first one that we're going to look at is Jesus as the Nazarene. Now, location is important because it's the setting of this portrait. Let's, we're going to look at some maps and try to understand the geography. And you have a map that looks like this in your workbook. It's on page 181, and the lesson begins on page 45. Now, I have this map blown up a little bit so you can see these cities a little bit better. According to Luke 2, 1-7, through 7, Mary and Joseph are originally from Nazareth, which is up here in Galilee. And they were required to travel to Bethlehem, which is down here. All right. So why? 
they needed to enroll in a government-mandated census. Luke 2 tells us that they went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David. So let's think about this journey as we get our bearings. Bethlehem, you can see, is south of Galilee. So what Luke meant but when he said go up to Bethlehem means they went up in elevation. Uh, Jerusalem is right down here, very close to Bethlehem, and the elevation here is about 2,500 feet. It's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and Mary is likely in her third trimester. But this is not her first trip while pregnant. Remember back when the angel visited her? She arose and she went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah, and she greeted Elizabeth. Well, perhaps Joseph and Mary had a donkey for her to ride on. We don't know, although it's usually pictured that way on Christmas cards, isn't it? It may have been faster to walk, as donkeys can be slow and stubborn. Well, this journey was certainly not easy. Some scholars estimate four days, but that would be a pretty fast rate of over 20 miles per day and no rest stops for food and for bathroom breaks. My guess is that they may have gone at a slower pace for the health of Mary and baby Jesus. So we're going to look at a possible route. So Nazareth is up here. You saw this earlier. It's up on a kind of a ridge. And so they, they may have gone from Nazareth down to this town of, it's called Betshan right here, and then continued on to the Jordan River, where they could have walked along the Jordan River here. And there's trees that would provide some cover, maybe even some date trees where they could get uh, something to eat. And they would have followed it possibly down to the city of Jericho, where there was then a trail that would go from Jericho up to Jerusalem. Now Jericho, this you can see right here, Jericho is one of the lowest places on earth. This is 846 feet below sea level. And so you can imagine this hike then from Jericho to Jerusalem would have been a very steep climb. Here's Jerusalem right here. All uphill. It's about 3,000 feet of elevation gain. And so I googled a hiking tour, which you could do in Israel if you had the money. It's about $500 per person, and you could hike from Jericho to Jerusalem with a guide. And the brochure said, hikers should be comfortable hiking up to seven hours a day, but will only do so for two days. Please note that although hiking in the gorge is easy, there are a few technical parts. Well, Jerusalem is on uh, quite a large hill. It's like I said, about 2,500 feet of elevation. Think of the Psalms of Ascent. These are Psalms that the people of Israel would sing as they were climbing up to Jerusalem. After they got to Jerusalem, it would be a little bit more level as it would only be a few more miles down to Bethlehem. So while they're there, Jesus is born and they remain there in Bethlehem until they're directed by an angel to take Jesus and to flee to Egypt. And so they were to remain there until God told them that it was safe to go back. So I've got another map here that has the route that they would have taken, likely. So Bethlehem is right here. 
and they would have gone over here. They would have taken the way, this is called the way of the sea or the way of the Philistines, and they would have gone down here to Egypt. And then we read in Matthew chapter 2, Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, he became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. So Herod responds here in furious rage, right? And this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that Jeremiah wrote. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. D.A. Carson put it this way. He said, Matthew has already made the exile a turning point in his thought. And that is when he, when he wrote his genealogy. He said, for at that time, the Davidic line was dethroned. The tears of the exile are now being fulfilled. That is, the tears begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived, and he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. Well, Herod died about 4 BC, and when Joseph heard that he was dead, he returned then not to Bethlehem, where Herod's brutal son Archelaus was reigning, but he went back to Nazareth in Galilee, where another one of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas, is reigning. And this also is a fulfillment of prophecy, uh, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. I've got a picture here for you. This is one that, um, that I took when I was in Israel uh, on a trip with Bethlehem College and Seminary about six years ago. Now, this name Nazarene was not used as a compliment. There's no Old Testament reference to Nazareth or Nazarene, but apparently it was seen by the Jews as kind of a cultural backwater, we might say podunk, um, with lots of Gentiles living in the area. So it was a little bit more suspect and considered as a despised place. Don Carson says this points to the theme of Jesus being despised. Later in Acts, we see the term um, used for believers, and they were called the sect of the Nazarenes. So this was also intended as a slur. You can catch a bit of the, this uh, of Nazareth's reputation by Nathaniel's comment when Philip tells him of Jesus' hometown. Nathaniel replies, well, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip answers wisely, come and see. So Jesus is raised in Nazareth and he considers it his hometown. And here's another picture that I have for you. This was taken like I said, back in about 2015, and standing in the little village of Nazareth, looking out at the modern city that has grown up around it. I hope you take time to consider Jesus' humble hometown. As a follower of Jesus, consider, are you willing to humble yourself and to take on whatever shame and persecution people heap on Jesus and his followers today? And think about in what ways identifying with Jesus opens us up to shame and to persecution. Okay, we're going to go on to the next section that you'll see on page 47 
of your workbook. This is a section on Jesus as a carpenter. Now, Mark 6 gives additional information on Jesus, his occupation, and his family. We read this in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. He went away from here, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people, and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages, teaching. So the reaction of the crowd here is unbelief. They took offense at him. And as a consequence, no mighty works were done there. A few sick people were healed, is all. So I had you consider in your lesson what kind of an income a carpenter made. And I've got another couple of pictures here that uh, I took when we were in Nazareth. This is a reenactment uh, in this little village here, but it shows you a little bit about what it might have looked like. Here's a second one where you can see some of the tools that were laying around here. As far as an income that a carpenter made, I had you look back at Leviticus, 1, uh, Leviticus 12 and Luke 2 for some clues. And what we found is that carpentry probably wasn't a big money maker. probably didn't make uh, Jesus' family wealthy. Because we read that, the, that Mary and Joseph, when they brought Jesus to the temple on the occasion of Mary's purification from childbirth, they bring the offering of what was we considered a poor person, a pair of doves or pigeons, because they did, could not afford a lamb. So as we learned last week, Jesus didn't introduce his kingdom with the pomp and the circumstance of an earthly king. He was not what was expected. He came as the despised and scorned and rejected servant that we saw in Isaiah 53. He would not be known as Jesus of Bethlehem with the honor of a messianic king or the son of David, though he had been born in Bethlehem. Instead, he would be called Jesus of Nazareth. And the people began to argue, right? They said, this is really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So it's, it's interesting to ponder here. And I had you ponder what uh, things that Jesus has created, right? John 1.3 reveals that Jesus was the creator, the builder or you might even say the carpenter of the universe, to ponder that the hands that form the stars and the planets learn to hold carpenter tools. 
And how is this master carpenter of Nazareth working in your life today? So I hope you'll take some time to reflect on that. Reflect on whether you've ever resented the way that God has made you. One of my favorite verses is, For God, who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the second element now of a great portrait, and that's the lighting. And I want to connect it to the location of Jesus' ministry, especially his healing ministry. We're going to look at light more next week when we see precious pictures in lesson four. But for this week, I'd like to look at the healing and the prophetic ministry of Jesus in an area of great darkness. Do you remember the lyrics to Hark the Herald Angels Sing? Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. It's only through the healing of our blind eyes and the illumination of the Spirit that we can see Jesus. Well, I want to talk a little bit of history right now. We're going to talk a little bit about two tribes of Israel. One is called Zebulon and one is called Naphtali. All right, these were two of the 12 sons of Jacob or tribes of Israel who were assigned areas that were way up north in the province of Galilee by the Sea of Galilee. And so their location might be comparable to where Lake Superior is in Minnesota. And we might consider that uh, uh, Naphtali, which is north of the Sea of Galilee, is kind of like how uh, that part of, of Minnesota extends on up to the Boundary Waters canoe area. So I've got a picture for you of the Sea of Galilee uh, this is standing on the shore, looking out. And then here is also a map, Google Earth map, where we can see where this area is in comparison to the re rest of the region. Okay, so the area of Zebulon and, and Naphtali, well, first of all, this little area right here is the Sea of Galilee in blue. And the area of Zebulon would be this area kind of over here. And Naphtali would be this area up here that extends north. Well, back in the day, when enemies of Israel wanted to come and attack uh, Israel and attack Jerusalem, they didn't want to go through this area here is desert. They didn't want to go through this area of the Arabian Desert. But they would instead go around and they would attack from the north and they would go right through this area of Zebulon and Naphtali meaning that area got picked on a lot. Those that were living in this land, they really needed to hear a message of hope. And that's exactly what they got from the prophet Isaiah. We read in Isaiah 9, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Okay, here, you can hardly see it on this map, but here is the Jordan River that extends from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. The Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. 
those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And then Isaiah goes on in chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the very areas that had suffered so much were about to see the light of God's Son. Now, on your map that you have, this is what it looks like. Again, I zoomed in a little bit farther. When Jesus grew up, he grew up in Nazareth. And let me see if I can circle that here in blue. Here's Nazareth right here. Nazareth is in the land of which tribe? If you can remember back to that other map that I had up, extends from about here around like this. That's the land of Zebulon, roughly. I'm not a great artist here, but where did Jesus begin his ministry and carry on much of his work? In this very land. Where did he preach and do miracles? Well, a lot of it started right here in the city of Capernaum, as we're going to see in a minute. This is also in this land. Capernaum is actually in the land of Naphtali, which extends from from Dan, uh, kind of down here like that. Where did Jesus walk on the water? and cause miraculous catches of fish and calm the storm? Well, that would be right here in the Sea of Galilee. So this is a land of great darkness, but Jesus is about to come here and shed some light, healing light, prophetic light. And God's word is truly a lamp for our feet and a light for our path, every step. And that's also why whatever our circumstances, wherever we live, There's no better place to be than in a place where we see Jesus, the light of the world, shining into the darkness of our community and our culture. So next we're going to look at Jesus as healer. In your lesson this week, you read passages promising healing that Jesus would bring. And this lesson starts, or this part of the lesson starts on page 49. Now, the Gospels are kind of like a photo album or a scrapbook with a collection of images of people being healed, young and old, rich and poor, men and women. And now, this, these verses aren't in your lesson. I'm going to put them on the screen. But first, I'd like to look at Luke chapter 8. And we're going to read here uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It says, soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women, you see this, who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Johanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. Now, we don't know the particulars of their healing stories, but I do want to take a closer look at a few snapshots of women who were healed by Jesus. Now, the first story of physical healing that we see in the book of Mark takes place in Capernaum, and I just circled that on the map um, just a second ago. Here's some of the events that take place in Mark chapter 1. 
you want to follow along, just to highlight the context of where we are. So Mark 1 starts where John the Baptist is preparing the way, and this takes place in the wilderness near Judea. Judea. And then Jesus is baptized. He goes out into the wilderness where he's tempted. He begins his ministry then in Galilee. He calls his first disciples while walking along the shore of Galilee. And Jesus heals a man with an unclean spirit. And we're going to read this passage next. This takes place in the city of Capernaum at the synagogue. And then Jesus heals many, including Peter's mother-in-law. So let's go on to, we're going to look at this on the map for just a second so you can be refreshed um, to where Capernaum is. It's right up here, right on the coast, right on the, right next to the sea. Right, so now we're going to read this passage from Mark 1. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, And they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. I've got a picture for you here of the city of Capernaum. This is my husband Barry standing here by this gate. And Jesus, we learned, had been teaching at this synagogue. Here is a picture of the synagogue of Capernaum. And he, he cast out the unclean spirit from the man. And it, Mark says that immediately they left the synagogue and they walked to the house of Peter. So here is, uh, you can see there, uh, Mark uh, 1, 29 through 34, they left the synagogue and they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with the fever, and immediately they told him about her, and he came and he took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. This is a picture of some of the ruins of the city of Capernaum, and it was a very short distance from the synagogue to the house of Peter. And there's actually a church that has been built on top of the ruins, but it's got glass over it, so if you see right over here where I put that star, you could look down and you could see where they've discovered the ruins of Peter's house. Very interesting. This is Matthew's account, the very same account that we saw in Mark. 
Matthew adds this little bit here. When Jesus entered Peter's house, right? He sees his mother-in-law, the same, the same thing, the, basically the same until we get to this last part here. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. So Matthew connects this to a prophecy that you have in your lesson. You looked at Isaiah 53. This is on page 49 and 50 of your workbook. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Griefs can be translated sicknesses, and sorrows can be translated pain. God's suffering servant, Jesus, takes the sin, the sickness, the brokenness, and the suffering on himself. So when we see Jesus healing both physical and spiritual illnesses, it adds to the portrait of Jesus as the suffering servant that we're going to study more in a future lesson. Did you notice Peter's mother-in-law's reaction to when Jesus healed her? It says here that she rose and she began to serve him. I wonder why the gospel writers highlighted this. I think this points to what Jesus says later in Mark 10, when he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, we saw that title last week in our lesson, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as the word spread about Jesus the healer, there were many that came begging for healing, but sometimes he showed up and he healed before even being asked. And that is the, the situation that we're going to look at next, which takes place about six or eight miles away from Nazareth. Here's Nazareth again right here on this map. Here's Nazareth. And this next story takes place in this little village called Nain. We see here, um, here's a topographical map. You can see Nain is right down here. It's not that far from Nazareth. And here again is um, uh, Capernaum that's right up here on the top end of the Sea of Galilee. So we read in Luke, this is Luke 7, verses 11 through 16. Soon afterwards, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Isn't that beautiful? We see this 
name, this is the first time that Luke uses this name, the Lord. This denotes his, his authority, and he uses it here in showing compassion on this widow. So Jesus meets us, too, in our grief. And then Luke writes, look at here later, after Jesus touches him, he says, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Isn't this a wonderful picture of what Jesus does for us? We too are completely lifeless, dead. We are dead in our trespasses and our sins, and Jesus raises us. And I think it's beautiful that he says to her, do not weep, because one day he knows he will wipe every tear from our eyes, and one day he will speak life into the dead, just as he does into this grieving widow's son. Now we're going to look at a couple of other very sweet and beautiful pictures. We're going to look at Mark 5, which details the healings of two daughters. The first one takes place, Mark 5, verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him, earnestly saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. So Jairus' daughter is dying, and Jesus goes along, and in the midst of this crowd, Mark then focuses on one desperate yet very hopeful woman in this great throng. So look, we're going to move ahead here to Mark 5, verse 25 through 29. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I want you just to remember that, for 12 years. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better off, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd And she touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. This is an amazing story. But then do you know what happens next? Something that causes a little bit of fear probably in her heart. Look here, verse 30 through 34. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing all around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. Can you imagine the fear in her heart? But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. 
Here she is, her worst fear found out, but she confessed to Jesus. And Jesus doesn't condemn her or humiliate her, but he commends her faith. Do you see this? He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He gives her his peace and the gift of healing. Well, Jesus knows our need for healing, whatever that may be. He may not heal us right here and right now, but he knows, he cares, and he has promised to be with us and give us his peace. Well, Mark goes on in this story with another jolt. We read, while he, Jesus, was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. Can you imagine the thoughts that were racing through the mind of this just healed daughter who had been sick for 12 years when it's announced that this little daughter is dead, that maybe her actions had caused Jesus to be too late to heal this little girl. But here we see this sweet portrait of Jesus. He says, do not fear, only believe. And then we see what Jesus does. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and he went in to where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And then notice this interesting detail. You see this? For she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. I want to read to you uh, a quote from Rebecca McLaughlin in her book. Her book is called through Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. She had been alive, this little girl, she had been alive as long as the woman who had been sick. The girl was hitting puberty The woman's life had been ruined by malfunctioning menstruation. Under Old Testament law, just as Jesus would be made ceremonially unclean by contact with a bleeding woman, so he would be made unclean by touching a dead body. But Jesus is no more put off by our inevitable uncleanness than a mother who has just given birth would be put off from holding her blood-smeared newborn. Before long, Jesus 
would bleed for this woman and die for this girl. But in this moment, he just makes them well. Isn't this a beautiful portrait of Jesus as our healer? I hope it's becoming more clear to you. Can you see him as the one who can heal you with just a word or a touch? He came to bear our griefs and our sorrows, our brokenness and our sickness. By his wounds, we are healed. And when he went to the cross, he shed his blood for us, enduring more pain than the woman who had bled for 12 years. And his garment, that one that she reached out and touched, it was gambled for and divided up by the roll of the dice. He died in our place to give us resurrection life. Oh, I hope, sisters, that if you have experienced the healing touch of Jesus in your life, that you will make an effort to share your story with someone this week. In fact, I would love to hear testimonies from you. Go ahead and email me. I would love to hear from you. All right, next we're going to go to the section in your lesson about Jesus being a prophet. Another term that people used for him was prophet. We've already looked at Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, but before we look at Jesus in this role, I want to just take a minute to look at another portrait of Jesus going back to his newborn days. Earlier, we pondered the fact that when Mary and Joseph went to the temple to make a postpartum purification sacrifice, they brought doves that kind of pointed to their poverty. But according to Luke, when they went to the temple, they encountered two individuals there. The first one was Simeon, and Simeon prophesied to Mary. He said, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The second person that they saw there at the temple was a prophetess, Anna. She was the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We get a lot of detail here, don't we? She was advanced in years, so the opposite end of the spectrum from Mary, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Anna, the prophetess, actually is pointing to Jesus as the Redeemer. Okay, so now in your lesson, we looked at many ways and many different people who referred to Jesus as a prophet. The first example you saw, this was in question 22, was when Jesus rides into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna. And this is Matthew 21. And the whole city was stirred up and they said, who is this? This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So a little bit of background here. In Bible times, a prophet was 
specially chosen by God, appointed and or anointed and generally very highly esteemed by the people. And so when people were were here in the time of Jesus, when they were awed by the miracles that he did, or they marveled at the his profound wisdom and knowledge or his great power, people would acclaim him as a prophet. And this was a great compliment. Now you looked back uh, at a couple of Old Testament um, guys who point to Jesus. And the first one that you looked at, we found in Deuteronomy 18, where um, the Lord promised Moses that he would raise up a prophet like Moses, and he would put uh, words in his mouth, and he would speak to them all the words that God would command them. And this points to Jesus. But Jesus is not just any prophet. Many see Jesus as the prophet that Moses had foretold hundreds of years, years before. Um, but he is, he is the one who is speaking words of God. Now, Matthew 12 and Luke 11 point to a prophet greater than Jonah. Now, remember, Jonah was the man who ran away from God's command to preach repentance to the city of Nineveh and ended up three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish. And this points to Jesus being three days and three nights in the tomb and then raising from the tomb. Now, in question 24, we looked at um, Jesus being preceded by his cousin, John the Baptist, who was widely seen by the people as a prophet as well. But when John was asked who he was, was he the prophet? He answers, no, he's not. And then do you remember after John's imprisonment and death, the people see Jesus as following in John's tradition, but they're really confused as to his identity. And I had you look at a couple of different passages as people are trying to grapple with who Jesus is. And a number of different um, people here say that Jesus is a prophet or a great prophet. We looked at Luke 7 and Matthew 16 and Luke 24 and John 4. And then I'd like to jump to John 6, where this is the occasion where Jesus is... uh, He's fed the 5,000, and the people here conclude something about Jesus. In John 6, 14, we read that when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then in John 7, uh, this is the occasion where Jesus is in Jerusalem, and he stands up on the last day of the Feast of Booths, and he proclaims, if anyone thirsts, Come to me and drink. And it's at that occasion that the people respond that this is really the prophet. We're going to look at this a little bit more next week um, as we see uh, Jesus coming uh, as he says that he is the, uh, the living water. So these are beautiful, beautiful pictures of Jesus as a prophet. I had you ponder in question 29 of your lesson, in what ways... Jesus' ministry was prophetic. And we learned that when God spoke through prophets, he did it in two, uh, kind of two main ways. And one way was foretelling the future or predictive. And another way was to provide warning 
of judgment to come or possibly comforting God's people to, for them to keep trusting that help was coming. So uh, Jesus actually spoke in both of these ways. He was a truth teller to his generation. He was also a predictor. He was one who told his disciples what the future held. For example, he proclaimed the coming of the kingdom of God, and he told them in advance that he was going to die and that he would rise again. And he gave a detailed account of the last days. So I think it would be fair to say that Jesus was really an excellent prophet. I got to thinking about how the writer of Hebrews talked about Jesus in the opening lines of Hebrews. He said, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So Jesus replaces the prophets, not because he's so different from other prophets, but because he's so much better. He's the fulfillment of all the prophets that that came before him. And he not only speaks to us the words of God, but he actually is the word of God. John 1 tells us that he is the word made flesh, which is a beautiful thing. Now, in your lesson, you also learn that Jesus is our friend. This is really a profound truth that we can cling to. And I hope that you took some time to ponder Jesus as your friend, that you looked at these passages, that Jesus is a friend of tax collectors and sinners, and friends of Jesus do what he commands. Jesus said, I have called you friends. This is beautiful. So I hope you will spend more time reflecting on this. The last one that we're going to look at today is Jesus as bridegroom. And this section begins on page 55 of your lesson. Now, the Old Testament paints a portrait of the Lord, Yahweh, as the loving, faithful husband, while Israel is the often unfaithful wife or bride. We read in Isaiah 54, 5, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. Hosea is another Old Testament book that shows the depth of the love and the mercy of the Lord toward his people. We read in chapter 2 of Hosea, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. You may recall that Jesus' first public miracle that John records for us in John 2 is at a wedding that takes place in Cana. Now, this is a little village that's very close to Nazareth. Here's Cana right here, and here is Nazareth. It's just a few miles away. Now, the bridegroom would have been responsible for providing all the wine for the guests, and when it ran out, he would be very embarrassed. So Jesus turns water into wine, providing more and even better wine 
And then in the following chapter of John, amidst confusion over who he was, and who is who in this chapter, John the Baptist said this. He said, I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. The portrait of Je- this portrait of Jesus, the bridegroom, is a beautiful picture of his lavish provision of love and grace and mercy for us, his people, his church, his bride. And I pray that if you didn't get to this point in your lesson, that you will go back and you will review these beautiful passages that talk about us as being presented to Christ, our bridegroom, as a pure virgin. Or in Ephesians 5, how it talks about Jesus giving himself up for us, that he might sanctify us, cleansing us by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present us, the church, to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish. These are beautiful passages. And another beautiful one is Revelation 21.9, which talks about the bride, that's us, the wife of the Lamb. There is a beautiful marriage celebration coming up. This is the celebration of us, the bride, and the Lamb, Jesus. There will be so much rejoicing Revelation 19 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I pray that you are rejoicing in this, that you are bride of Christ, if you are a believer and will be presented to him as his bride at that incredible marriage supper of the Lamb that is coming. So I pray that you will be faithful, that you will love him with all of your heart, that you will treasure Jesus, that you will be in communion with him, that you will love to spend time with him, your bridegroom because this does reflect our relationship with him as our bridegroom. I would love to be able to just pray for us as we close. Would you pray with me? Thank you, Father, for being with us. Thank you for these beautiful pictures of Jesus, the Nazarene, the carpenter's son, the prophet, the healer, our great physician, our friend, our our bridegroom. What an incredible privilege it is to be able to see these beautiful portraits of Jesus that you have given to us in your word. So Jesus, I pray that you would help us to know you and love you more with all of our hearts. And I ask this 
in your precious name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us 